Hello and welcome to the Zero to Finals podcast. My name is Tom and in this episode I'm going to be talking to you about type 2 diabetes. If you want to follow along with written notes on this topic, you can follow along at zerodefinals.com slash type 2 with a number diabetes or in the endocrinology section of the Zero to Finals medicine book. So let's get straight into it. So to start with, let's go through some simplified pathophysiology. Exposure to glucose and insulin make the cells of the body become resistant to the effects of insulin. Therefore, it requires more and more insulin to produce a response from the cells and to get them to take up the glucose. Over time, the pancreas, specifically the beta cells, become really tired and fatigued and damaged by producing so much insulin. So they start to produce less. If you have a continued onslaught of glucose on the body, in light of the insulin resistance and the fatigue in the pancreas, this leads to chronic hyperglycemia. And the chronic hyperglycemia leads to microvascular, macrovascular and infectious complications that we've discussed when we talked about type 1 diabetes. There's a few risk factors for developing type 2 diabetes. Firstly, let's talk about non-modifiable risk factors, and these are older age, the ethnicity, and it's particularly prevalent in black, Chinese, or South Asian patients, and of course, family history. So if you have a direct relative with type 2 diabetes, you clearly have a genetic predisposition to it. Next, let's talk about modifiable risk factors, and these are things like obesity, so everybody's capable of losing weight, sedentary lifestyles, and high-carbohydrate diets, particularly diets that are high in refined carbohydrates. So how do patients with type 2 diabetes present? Well, you've got to consider type 2 diabetes in any patient that fits the risk factors above. So it might be a patient who's obese, has a sedentary lifestyle, a high-carbohydrate diet, and maybe a family history of type 2 diabetes. It's very easy to screen for diabetes with a HbA1c blood test and early treatment goes a long way to prevent any complications from developing. It's also possible to reverse diabetes with a proper diet and lifestyle interventions. So therefore, it's really worth knowing about the type 2 diabetes early, and even better if you catch them in the pre-diabetic phase. So there's a couple of symptoms that will give you some extra clues, and these are things like fatigue, polyuria and polydipsia, so urinating a lot and being very thirsty unintentional weight loss, opportunistic infections, particularly things like oral candidiasis, slow healing, and glucose in the urine when you do a dipstick for some other reason. Let's talk about the oral glucose tolerance test because this becomes relevant when we talk about screening and testing for diabetes. An oral glucose tolerance test is performed in the morning prior to having breakfast. So the patient needs to be fasted overnight and have not eaten anything prior to the test. So what it involves is a baseline fasting plasma glucose. So you check their plasma glucose before they eat anything. And then you give them a 75 gram glucose drink. And then after two hours, you check their plasma glucose again. And what this test does is it checks the ability of the body to cope with that glucose meal. So how well can they process those carbohydrates? Let's talk about a condition called pre-diabetes. And pre-diabetes is an indication that the patient is heading towards diabetes. And diabetes isn't really an individual condition, 
that somebody might develop, for example like Parkinson's disease. Diabetes is more of a spectrum where patients become increasingly more resistant to insulin and impaired in their ability to tolerate glucose and at some arbitrary cutoffs which we'll go through, they go from normal to pre-diabetic to diabetic. So these patients with pre-diabetes don't fit the full diabetic diagnostic criteria, but they should be educated regarding diabetes and changing their lifestyle to try and reduce their risk of progressing to diabetes. So they're not currently recommended to start medical treatment at this point. To establish a diagnosis of pre-diabetes, you can either check the HbA1c or by having impaired fasting glucose or impaired glucose tolerance. An impaired fasting glucose means that the body struggles to get their blood glucose level into normal range even after a prolonged period without eating carbohydrates. An impaired glucose tolerance means their body struggles to cope with processing a carbohydrate meal. So the diagnostic criteria for pre-diabetics is a HbA1c between 42 and 47 millimoles per mole. An impaired fasting glucose, so their fasting glucose on the oral glucose tolerance test is 6.1 to 6.9 millimoles per litre. Or an impaired glucose tolerance, which is a plasma glucose at two hours after the carbohydrate meal on the oral glucose tolerance test of 7.8 to 11.1 millimoles per litre. Let's talk about the diagnostic criteria for diabetes. So in order to establish that a patient has a diagnosis of diabetes, they need to meet the following criteria. They could have a HbA1c above 48 millimoles per mole, a random glucose above 11 millimoles per litre, a fasting glucose above 7 millimoles per litre, or an oral glucose tolerance test result at two hours after the carbohydrate meal of more than 11 millimoles per litre. Let's talk about management of type 2 diabetes. And this is quite a big topic really, so it's going to take a while to go through all the treatment recommendations and the options that are available. But by the end of this section, you should have a good idea about how we manage type 2 diabetics. Patient education about the condition and the lifestyle changes that they need to make is absolutely essential. So it's really important to advise the patient that it is actually possible to cure type 2 diabetes. And this has been proven recently in clinical studies such as the DIRECT study, where they put patients on an 800 calorie per day diet, and they achieved a really good rate of remission from the diabetes. So some dietary modifications that you can have. Obviously, we've talked about this quite extreme diet of 800 calories per day. But generally at the moment we advise things like increasing their vegetable intake and their oily fish intake. The typical advice is low glycemic and high fibre diets. And a low carbohydrate diet may in fact be more effective for treating and preventing diabetes but this isn't really mainstream advice at the moment. There's other things we need to do like optimising their other risk factors. So this is like exercise and weight loss for patients who are overweight stopping smoking because this increases their risk of all the vascular complications and then optimizing the treatment for all the other illnesses that they might have like hypertension, hyperlipidemia and cardiovascular disease. And then we have to monitor these patients for complications. 
because patients with type 2 diabetes are really prone to getting complications. So we monitor for things like diabetic retinopathy, kidney disease, and diabetic foot. So what kind of treatment targets do we have for type 2 diabetes? Well, the SIGN guidelines from 2017 and the NICE guidelines from 2015 recommend the following HbA1c treatment targets. So firstly, we would aim for less than 48 millimoles per mole for new type 2 diabetics on the HbA1c and less than 53 millimoles per mole for diabetics who have moved beyond just having metformin alone. Next, let's talk about the medical management of type 2 diabetes. This is based on the NICE guidelines from 2015, which were updated again in 2017. The first line treatment for type 2 diabetes is metformin. And this is titrated initially from 500 milligrams once a day, up as high as the dose will go as the patient tolerates. The second line treatment is to add either sulfonylurea, pioglitazone, a DPP-4 inhibitor, or a SGLT2 inhibitor. And we'll talk about all of the pros and cons of these four medications shortly. And the decision which one to add should be based on individual factors and their tolerance of the medication. Third line treatment, once you've had metformin and you've added a second line medication, is to have triple therapy with metformin and two of the second line drugs combined or with metformin plus insulin. The SIGN guidelines from 2017 suggest the use of SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 inhibitors, preferentially in patients with cardiovascular disease, because these two medications improve the outcomes for patients with cardiovascular disease. So now we're going to go through all these different medications in turn, so that you get an idea, because you'll be coming across and using these medications quite a lot. So firstly, let's talk about metformin. Metformin is something called a bigunide, and what it does is it increases insulin sensitivity and decreases the liver production of glucose. So it's considered to be weight neutral, so it doesn't increase or decrease body weight, and it does have some notable side effects. The main ones are GI upset, so diarrhea and abdominal pain, and these side effects of diarrhea and abdominal pain tend to be dose dependent. So as you titrate that dose up, you'll find that patients start to get some of these side effects and reducing the dose often resolves these symptoms. Another key side effect to remember is lactic acidosis. So if you have a patient who comes in and you do an ABG on them and you find that they have a lactic acidosis, check their drug chart and see whether they might be on metformin. Important to note is that metformin doesn't typically cause a hypoglycemia. So it's safe in patients who are at risk of hypoglycemia, unless they're on other things like liclozide or insulin. Pioglitazone is the next one to talk about. Pioglitazone is what we call a thiazolidinedone, and this increases insulin sensitivity and decreases the liver production of glucose. And there's a few notable side effects to pioglitazone. One is weight gain, so it needs to be used in caution with patients who are obese already. It can cause fluid retention, anemia, heart failure, and extended use actually increases the risk of bladder cancer. And it doesn't typically cause hypoglycemia. Next, let's talk about sulfonylureas. And the most common sulfonylurea is glycoside. 
And how sulfonylureas work is they increase the insulin release from the pancreas. So they increase your natural production of insulin. There's a few notable side effects. One is weight gain, because insulin is an anabolic hormone that causes you to put on weight. And it's important to note that it can increase your risk of having hypoglycemic episodes. So it does cause hypoglycemia. Sulfonylureas also increase the risk of cardiovascular disease and myocardial infarction when they're used on their own. But this increased risk disappears when you combine them with metformin. Next we'll talk about something called incretins. And incretins are relevant for DPP-4 inhibitors and GLP-1 mimetics. And incretins are hormones that are produced naturally by the GI tract and they're secreted in response to large meals. So when you eat a large meal, the GI tract produces these incretins, and the purpose of incretins is to reduce your blood sugar. And they do this by increasing insulin secretion, inhibiting glucagon production, and slowing the absorption by the GI tract. So these are all really helpful things, particularly in somebody with type 2 diabetes. The main incretin in our body is called glucagon-like peptide 1, or GLP-1. Incretins are inhibited by an enzyme called dipeptidylpeptidase 4, or DPP-4. Therefore, GLP-1 is helpful, it's an incretin, and DPP-4 inhibits incretin, so it's not helpful. So we have DPP-4 inhibitors. So these DPP-4 inhibitors work by inhibiting the DPP-4 enzyme that inhibits the incretins. So the most common DPP-4 inhibitor is called citagliptin. And a few notable side effects of these DPP-4 inhibitors as they cause GI upset. They cause symptoms a little bit like an upper respiratory tract infection. And they can also cause pancreatitis. Next we'll talk about GLP-1 mimetics. So these are medicines that mimic the action of the GLP-1 enzyme. A common GLP-1 mimetic is called exenatide, and exenatide is given as a subcutaneous injection either twice a day by the patient themselves, or once weekly in a modified release form. And another GLP-1 mimetic is called leaglutide, and this is given as a daily subcutaneous injection, usually by the patient themselves. And these are sometimes used in combination with metformin and a sulfonylurea in overweight patients. And they have some notable side effects. Again, they cause GI tract upset. They can actually cause weight loss. They can cause some dizziness and there's a low risk of developing hyperglycemia. Finally, let's talk about SGLT2 inhibitors. And SGLT2 inhibitors end with the suffix gliflozin. So some examples are empagliflozin, canagliflozin, and dapagliflozin. And the SGLT2 protein is responsible for absorbing glucose from the urine back into the blood in the proximal tubules of the kidneys. So basically they stop glucose from being reabsorbed from the urine, so cause more glucose to be excreted into the urine. So glucose is lost from the blood into the urine. Empagliflozin has been shown to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease, hospitalization with heart failure, and basically all-cause mortality in type 2 diabetics in a recent trial. Canagliflozin has also been shown to reduce the risk of cardiovascular events such as MI stroke, death, and hospitalization with heart failure in type 2 diabetics. 
and these reduce risks that have been proven recently with SGLT2 inhibitors are likely to be due to the class rather than the individual medications. But these benefits haven't been proven for all SGLT2 inhibitors. But it looks very promising that this is a very good type of medication to protect patients with type 2 diabetics from other conditions like heart disease. There's a few notable side effects, as you might imagine glucoseuria or glucose in the urine, because that's the main mechanism of action of the drug. There's also an increased risk of developing urinary tract infections because of all that extra glucose that's going to be sitting in the urine in the bladder. They cause weight loss because essentially you're losing calories through the urine. And there's also a risk of diabetic ketoacidosis, notably with only a moderately raised glucose. But this is quite a rare complication. Now that we've covered basically all the medications that you use in type 2 diabetes, we need to talk about insulin. And we're going to go through a few different examples of insulins and their duration of action. And this is going to be a lot of names that you'll become much more familiar with as you're doing day-to-day prescriptions on real patients. You'll get to know them really well, but it's worth getting a grip on what different types of insulin are available and how you might use them. Firstly, we'll talk about rapid-acting insulins, and these start to work after about 10 minutes, and the effects last about 4 hours. So this is things like Novarapid, Humalog, and Apidra. Then you have short-acting insulins, and these start to work about 30 minutes after they're taken, and they last about 8 hours. So this is things like ActRapid, Humulin-S, and Insuman-Rapid. Then you have immediate-acting insulins, and these start to work about one hour after you take them, and the effects last about 16 hours. And this is things like insulitard, humulin-I, and insuman-basal. Then you have long-acting insulins, and these start to work about an hour after you take them, and the effects last about 24 hours. So these have quite a flat profile and they're used as background insulins. So these are things like Lantus, Levomir, and then there's something called Deglodec, which lasts over 40 hours. And finally, we need to talk about something called combination insulins. So these are a combination of a rapid-acting and an intermediate-acting insulin. So this is a proportion of long- to short-acting insulins. So you have things like Humalog 25, which is 25% short-acting and 75% long-acting. Then there's Humalog 50, which is 50% short-acting, 50% long-acting. And then there's Novamix 30, which is 30% short-acting and 70% long-acting. 